now, our feature presentation. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Tina's coming home, girl. Can you feel me? I'm sure I can feel you, girl. Welcome into another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser. And if you're tuning in for this episode, you know what time it is. Got a new guest here ready to share the story of C-Note from Orlando, David Perez, one of the OG members of C-Note. David, welcome on into the podcast. How are you? What's up, Jeff? Man, thanks for having me. I'm good, man. I'm good. It's really good to have you on. Glad that you're doing well. Uh, what's been up with you lately? What's been going on in your world? Just got back from uh, Murphy, North Carolina. Went up to the mountains for a week with the uh, with the family, trying to get away and disconnect. And it was cool, man. Did a lot of hiking, did a lot of tubing down the Tacoma River, horseback riding. Um, even though it rained every day, which I, I knew, I heard it was totally torrential downpours happening here. The same thing was happening over there, but we were just like, you know what? We're here. We're not going to stay cooped up in the cabin. So we got out. We hiked trails to waterfalls in like just pouring rain, slipping everywhere. And then uh, supposed to come back Saturday, but because Saturday was the only day that the sun came out. So I was like, you know what? We'll stay one more day so we can actually get on the river and tube and, and have some fun. And, and so it worked out for us. That's very nice. Is this something you typically do every year with your family? Go on a vacation somewhere? Well, yeah, you know, you have the typical, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and then you have spring break, and then you have summer break. So we definitely try to do something. And and this summer, we decided to go out to, to the to the mountains and, and uh, get a cabin, which was very cool. And my nephew was down from California, he flew in. And so, you know, all the kids were having a great time. Some of those same people in North Carolina look at Florida as that vacation destination when the people from Florida are looking for some other areas like the mountains and doing more hiking. So it's nice that you can go there and those that want to go to Florida can check out places like Orlando, right? Yeah, for sure. There, uh, You know, we got a lot of that while we were there talking to the locals and, uh, you know, they were like, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, hey, you know, we've got the beach. That's our backyard, but we don't have these mountains and these the scenery and and just these waterfalls and these amazing caves and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we like to get out there and disconnect from our, and it really disconnect because there was literally no, no cell service where we were. True. <laughs> you literally can disconnect because there is yeah. no reception. Yeah. yeah. Not by choice sometimes. <laughs> so when you think about kind of where your early beginnings start, talk about that for a minute, kind of where did you grow up and what are some of your earliest memories of you kind of getting into music? Well, I was born in Jersey, right? Hoboken, New Jersey. And I always like to say me and, uh, or I should say Frank Sinatra and myself, right? Because he's he's a Hoboken kid. So uh, born there, but, you know, my dad was a truck driver. So, you know, we moved a lot. Um, moved here when I was five. And the big chunk majority of my life was here. I mean, we sporadically would move back to Jersey and then move to North Carolina for two years. But the majority of the chunk of my life has been Orlando. So, you know, I can't lose the Jersey born roots 
but I always say, you know, I, I was Jersey born and I was full grown. So, uh, you know, Florida to me is my home and, and I definitely feel at home when I'm home, when I'm here. And uh, as far as music, man, you know, I had a lot of music growing up in the household, right? So my parents, whether they were playing um, salsa, merengue, they were playing, you know, the oldies. So I had the best of, you know, the Spanish and the English and everything was happening in my house. And my parents were very social. So when the weekends came, everybody was at my house, right? Playing dominoes, playing cards, you know, the men doing their thing, the women are over there in the kitchen and not necessarily in the kitchen because they're cooking. They were just over there chatting it up and having their thing. And, you know, everybody was doing their own thing. And so it was a very, uh, very alive house with music and good vibes. And so I think that's where I learned it. And, uh, you know, and I know you hear these stories and it's, it's typical when you hear these uh, stories of musicians and, and actors and, and stuff like that. But it really was, you know, me breaking in the corner, you know, dancing and then coming out and telling all the parents to gather around because we're about to do a show for you and, you know, sh performing for them. So those were like our my earliest performance days. Right. Because I grew up I grew up dancing before I grew up singing. So, you know, entering dance competitions and doing all that. And then later came, you know, when Boys to Men hit the scene, you know, and, and I had this deep voice. I used to, you know, do it in the shower. And I was like, man, I can do this. You know, I have this deep voice. I can do this. Ba you know, bass is like a big part of Boys to Men. And, and he's such a, you know, foundation for them. And, you know, my friends thought I was crazy. And they were like, you know, David, shut up, Brody. Like, we're done listening to you, you know, wanting to play Boys to Men and Jodeci all the time. So, but, uh, but yeah, and then it could go right into how I first got into actually singing. If you want me to keep going, you know, I'm not sure if you wanted me to keep talking or you want to interject with a question. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was a great place to kind of begin because you mentioned dancing came before the singing. So did you have any influences in terms of who were some of your favorite dancers of that time? Um, well, of course, the one and only, right? Michael Jackson was the one. Um, and then you went from there. But I mean, I used to watch the Rocksteady uh you know, the B-Boys, Break-In, um, all, all the movies, Beat Street, Break-In, like all those movies just took me, you know, and then, you know, the iconic Michael Jackson moonwalk, you know, on on the award show was like, holy cow. And so I went from there um, and then, it, you know, graduated to, you know, Genuine, because when we were in the 90s, I mean, when Pony came out with Genuine, it was like the thing, right? And so I think I, you know, I wore that record out playing Pony every every day dancing to it and then Usher and you know all the Chris Browns all the dancers that were musicians to me were the ones that I gravitated to because that to me was like everything and encompassed you know the the, the performing the art of performing from uh, from singing to dancing and putting it all together and having that stage presence so that's that's where I went to. Were there a lot of other kids you were kind of growing up with who you were gravitating more to who you were finding had similar interests as you did at that time? Yeah, you know, um, there was. I mean, I had cousins and stuff they were doing. They were older than me. They were doing it. So I kind of took from them. And then, as like I said, as we were moving around everywhere, you know, in Jersey, you know, I, it, you know, I would find the guys that were breaking with their cardboard boxes, putting it on the corner of the street. Um, then when I moved to North Carolina, it was kind of a little bit of culture shock for me at that moment because, you know, we were Jersey and Florida, but Carolina is a little bit, it's a different South. You know what I mean? It's like that real Southern um which I, I've grown to love and so then I brought breaking there because the kids there weren't necessarily breaking 
And so like my neighborhood kids that I made friends with, when they saw what I was doing on the cardboard boxes, they wanted me to show them. So then I, that's, that was probably my first um, introduction to chore being a choreographer and like doing choreography, you know, cause I was setting up the dances for us and like telling them you do this while I do that. And those were like the earliest times of, of being a choreographer. And, you know, that just went transitioned right into C-Note when we, you know, we started doing our thing. Describe one of the earliest outfits that you would wear when you were doing a lot of these dances. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything you would think of, like back then, parachute pants, right? Like I know I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself, but I mean, the parachute pants, the sweatpants with the hoodie, you know, we would even go to the mall and get that stuff, you know, written on. I think I was part of a group in North Carolina called the Floor Masters. You know, you had to go to the mall and, and get Floor Masters put on the back of your shirt. And, and those were the outfits, right? So hoodie, you know, the parachute pants, because it was kind of like, you know, what Michael was wearing with the jacket and the thriller jacket with all the zippers and stuff like that. And of course, back then I was doing the knockoffs because, you know, I didn't, we didn't grow up, you know, we grew up lower middle class, but there was times where it was like lower, you know what I mean? Depending on how my dad's truck, you know, thing was going and my mom's work because she was constantly changing jobs for him, right? So if he got a job driving a truck that was like a, a bump, then my mom would move, you know, my mom was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. She would move there and then try to find a job there. And then it was kind of like, you know, we, we, it would fluctuate, but I would say we were lower middle, middle, uh, but there were times where it was, it was bad times. Right. So I'm wearing my brother's clothes and I remember he had a pair of corduroy pants and I wore them so much that the corduroy was gone. So they were just slick. <laughs> there was no lines in those things, man. <laughs> but those were like the outfits back in the day. Yes, I remember some of the stores of the day, like merry-go-round and casual corner. You go to the mall, and you'd find oh, a lot of those. Oh, remember some of those shops, and you'd find a lot yeah, of those stores there. Yeah, I would look at my brother. He was going in Chess King. You remember Chess that? King? Yes, Chess King. Oh, one. Yes. Yeah, man. All that's, that's where you found the gear, so you could do <laughs> those dances and what have you. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> what exactly? What do you remember about the first concert that you saw in Florida? Um. See, that's tough. It was for us here in Florida, it was more like um like festivals and like you know, street parties and stuff like that, you know. And for those, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of hip hop and RB going on at that time. Um, so for me, my where my concert thing came from was was being um, you know, in Jersey and being out there and 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 seeing concerts. But it was, you know, it was for me, it was I was really hard in the hip hop when I was younger, you know, that's what pulled me in because of the dancing and, and just the beat and the rhythm. So, you know, I was, I was run DMC beastie boys. I mean, LL Cool J to me, nobody could talk anything about LL Cool J. He's the goat. Right. So, you know, that was, and that was the first actual, you know, tape I bought was LL's on bad. So <laughs> like, that was my thing, you know, you could definitely do a lot worse. So that's a good, uh, <laughs> that's definitely a good one for sure. Uh, for you kind of being more into the hip hop and being more into that style of music, I feel like you almost had to go down to Miami to get more of like the Miami bass and stuff like that. Were you at all into that sort of thing that was going on in Miami at the time? Um, I, I, I did. I was, I was into it, but we had, um, it's either the 95 South or the 69 boys. They're from here. They're one of them is from here. I know that. Yeah. You are so, right. Which we ended up performing with later, which was cool. Um, oh yeah. Which one did you perform with? Uh, I want to say 95 South. We did, um, we ended up doing an Orlando bands together that Lou and Transcon put on out there by universal in this big lot that was open. And that's when he brought Backstreet and Sync Genuine 
um, us in a sense, LFO, um, you know, that in 95 South, he was great. He brought everybody out there at that point. I want to say it was like 98 or 97 is when he threw the concert. I want to say, because we ended up getting signed shortly after that, um, in, in, in 99. So, yeah. And that was around the same, that was 99 was around the time of the first C-Note album, A Different Kind of Love, right? Right. That's when, you know, we did that show because at that time we were already, you know, at that point we were already doing, um, you know, performance showcases for all the labels and stuff. And Backstreet was was big. Um, sync was just about to come over here from, from Europe. And so we did that Orlando Bass together. And about a week later, we flew up to New York. Uh, did a showcase for Epic Records, and that's when uh, Lee Chestnut from Epic Records was like, you know, we got we left there going, you know, I think that went well, and like a a couple nights later, we got our phone call from our manager, we're like flying back to New York because you guys are getting signed to Epic Records. We were like, wow, the moment, right? Every musician thinks that's the moment, that's it, you're set for life, but it's not really the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I definitely want to tap into a lot of that history around that whole situation. But I want to just quickly go back to uh, the early formation of, of C-Note and also for you, what perhaps were some of the earliest projects you were with, even that predated C-Note? What was that for you? And maybe tell us uh, who that first group was that you were with before you actually got into C-Note. Yeah. So went to high school with Raul Molina, who's who's one of the um, founding members as well of C-Note. And, but you know, play ball together here and there, um, kind of lost contact, whatever. And then after that, my sister had a quinceañera, which in the Spanish culture, when a, when a girl turns 15, she's coming into womanhood. And so that's a big deal, right? Big party, big to do. And at the time, I worked as valet at the hospital, at Florida Hospital. And this guy would always be singing on the on the walkie-talkies in between. And so I was like, man, I was like, you know, do you sing? And he's like, yeah, I got a group. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, all right, well, my sister's having a quinceañera and, you know, my cousin's going to DJ it and I'm going to MC it. Um, you think your guys would come and sing for her and surprise her? And he's like, yeah, let me ask him. So he did. So lo and behold, they comes, these guys walk in, I bring them into the garage because I'm trying to hide them, you know, and there's Raul. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I know you, you know, we know each other from high school. What's up? So we start talking and then they start singing. I'm blown away. I'm like, do I listen you guys? I've never heard anything like this in my face. Right now, again, you have to keep in mind that I'm secretly doing bass songs in my showers and stuff. Right. Not telling anybody that I, you know, I think I could do this. So I am seeing, I'm dancing, my cousin's DJing, the guys sing, amazing, you know, the hit of the party. And then a day later, back at work, that friend, Freddie, was like, hey, my guy saw you on the mic and heard your voice. And they were wondering if you sing. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you know, um, nothing like you guys. I mean, you guys are amazing. He's like, well, they'd want to know if you want to come try out. So I was like, okay. So it took me some, you know, it took me a while to say yes to him because in my mind, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, I've only ever, ever done this like secretly in the shower. So I end up going to uh, Brody's house, one of the members, and it's Raul, Brody, Freddie, um, and John. So four guys. I walk in, they start singing How Deep Is Your Love, you know, by the Bee Gees. And they're like, just do what comes natural. So I start doing, laying down a beat for them and then like coming in on the on the chorus um you know an octave lower and they were like dude you're in 
you're in if you want to be in. So I'm like, yeah, I'll be in. And from there, you know, they were already going to vocal lessons and stuff like that. You know, Brody and Raul had um, scholarships to Valencia for vocals. And Freddie was an amazing singer. And John Rodriguez, um, I don't, if a lot of people don't know, John Rodriguez is the younger brother of Luis Fonzi from the, you know, Despacito, um, which he's not only Despacito, he was a big artist before that song. That song just blew him into the stratosphere. So these guys were all, you know, well into their thing. So we started going to vocal lessons, you know, honing the skills. And at the same time, we we're entering every, every talent show in, in Orlando, every talent show we could find. And hands down, we're winning, like not even close, which I thought was amazing. And the guys were like, dude, and then, you know, they blew me up a little bit and they were like, dude, we weren't winning like this before you got here. It's like that you rounded off, rounded the, the, the group off with the bass voice. And so that to me was the very first time. And that group was called Sinigual because we were all from Latin uh, descent. So, and Sinigual in English is without equal, you know, not to be cocky. We thought we would, you know, we, we had no equals, right? So, and that was, the, that was the very first group that I was in and, and, and doing it and actually saying, okay, this is going to be something, you know? What were you performing for at those talent shows? Were there prizes or awards or any kind of scholarships or any kind of uh, anything that you could win at that time that you remember? Oh my God. I'm glad you asked that. So most of them were like a hundred dollars, right? So you would get a hundred dollars first place. And so we're winning these, these competitions and we're taking the hundred dollars and we go straight to Bennigan's because Bennigan's was the, the spot back then. Right. So we would take our winnings, go to Bennigan's and we would eat like kings and we would think like, you know, this is the best thing ever. And so that became a routine, you know, win Bennigan's, eat, sing at Bennigan's, anywhere we could sing, it was happening. Right. And so that's what we did. Um, and then luckily what happened with that was people started to hear us and, and know us and Valencia asked us to come back. And because Raul, I, I went to, I graduated from Valencia, Raul and Brody as well. And they ended up asking us to go back and doing this big concert over there. Um, and so we did that. And I want to say, even at that point, they had other groups and stuff. And when we sang in the, in, in the back, it was just like, you know, it was, it was, it was a cool, it was a cool feeling. Cause that's when we started feeling and, and seeing the notoriety kind of, you know, in a small, you know, Orlando and nobody really knows us, but yet when we come around these competitions and stuff, everybody's like, Oh, you guys, you know, because it's the same circuit of people trying to make it and trying to do their thing. And, and so then you get that camaraderie and it becomes like, you know, even being noticed by those guys, it was like something for us. We're like, oh, we're on our way, you know? Yeah. How are you, how are you promoting some of these shows? Like, cause it was very different right back then and not like it is today with social media. So how were you promoting some of these appearances to get people to turn out? Um, I mean, it's exactly what you would think. We were making our own little flyers, you know? little pamphlets and handing them out, putting them on cars and telling people we're going to be there and word of mouth. And every time we were together, we'd sing, right. And whatever kind of gathering that came around us, it was like, Hey, by the way, we're going to be here. Here's a, here's a flyer. And that became just our thing. It was sing everywhere, anywhere for anyone. I mean, God forbid that we heard somebody having a birthday in a restaurant we were in. It was a wrap. Like we're up and we're over there going, Hey, we'll sing you guys happy birthday. Right. And then, so the whole restaurant starts to listen and that's our that's our end to start passing out fires and saying, hey, we're going to be at this show and we're going to be doing this. And we're going to be doing that. And that's what actually led us to Lou Perlman through all that in those competitions um, is what led us led us to him. At what point did he learn of the group? He learned of the group because there was a guy that had done some stuff for Backstreet. 
And that guy saw us at one of these competitions and said, hey, I'd love for you guys to come to my studio in Winter Park. And that for us was like, holy cow, we're going to cut a record, right? So we went to his studio and he had, you know, Backstreet, he had a couple of plaques and stuff like that. And these guys knew who Backstreet was. And, you know, me <laughs> being like, you know, the R&B hip hop guy, I had no, I had no idea who Backstreet was. And so Raul and Brody and, and the guys did. Um, and there's a reason why they do, and I can get into that, but I didn't. And so I'm looking at these guys on the wall going, wow, they look like, you know, they look like us, you know, five guys singing. And so I was like, cool. And that, and that guy said, I know the guy that started that group. And we were like, oh yeah, really? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to get that guy. And I want you guys to go meet him. And so that one chance meeting turned it into, now we're going to meet this guy who started this group. And then of course, after I saw those plaques and I asked Raul and Brody, you know, like, who are these guys? Like, what's the real deal? And then he started, they started showing me. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> these guys are legit. Right. And at that time they were killing it overseas. You know, this was before even that way back then was before they even came here, you know? So there wasn't yeah, right. yet. They were just not even being, they were, had just been formed and were just getting ready to go out over there and, and follow that, you know, that plan, that format of, of going overseas, the GSA market and all that. Do you remember what you performed in front of Lou that really caught his attention as well? Yeah, for us, it was How Deep Is Your Love. I mean, that was our go-to. That was so, the one. Yeah, it was the one. So whenever we did that acapella, it was like, okay, you know? And so we did that for him and and he was like, all right. You know, he had a little bit of a poker face, you know, let us leave. And, you know, we thought we did all right. But see, Brody and Roll had already known him before and they were just getting reacquainted where he when we walked in he looked at Brody and Drew and Raul and we're like wait a minute you guys look familiar and they're like yeah so Brody and Raul were in the group that became in sync so it was Brody Raul Chris Kirkpatrick um I want to say because they used to always say to some other guy's name and I want to say his name was Jay but I'm not sure but they would talk about that and then I think Brody wasn't it wasn't matching up with with the direction that Lou wanted or something like that and so you know Brody was kind of like let go and said you know we're moving in a different direction and then the other member that was with them for some reason wouldn't show up to things and they were kind of getting fed up and then because Brody was gone already Raul just kind of said you know what I'm going to move on I'm going to try to do something else and then he left and then after that is when Chris was told by Lou, hey, I got these two guys at the Mickey Mouse Club, JC and, and Justin. And, and then they got Joey from uh was the big guys at Universal they used to sing with and he was in the group with Louis Fonzi. So it's all like, you know, the seven the show the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon's like this, the boy band time at that time in Orlando was literally seven degrees of everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So we were all connected in somehow, some way. Um when they met Chris, that was kind of their, we're going to do this. Right. And then Lou came in the picture and then it was like, okay, now we have someone, now we're going to do it. But there's so much that goes on between that moment and getting to the actual moment, you know, and, and, and that gets lost in translation. But um, with me, it was, it was, you know, I was doing dance competitions. Cause like I said, I was dancing first. And so I was entering dance competitions everywhere, you know, universal skating ring, uh, you know, at the time, now I don't even want to date myself. Scats was here. I was at that place. And I, anywhere you could, they had dance competitions, you would find me with this secret 
you know, idea that I could sing to, you know? And so that was my way where I thought I was going to go. And I was modeling and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I thought it, I was going to get my foot in the door through there somehow and then get there. And then that one chance meeting with, with CNY turns it into, okay, this music thing's for real. Fast forward, we meet Lou. Um, and the thing with that group is since that was Freddie, John, Brody, Raul, and myself, um, Lou was like, you know, Brody and, and Raul, I know you guys, that, you know, if you guys are willing to do something, let's do something that he was like, David, I think is, is, is got it. And uh, Freddie had already been trying to quit our group prior for months. And Lou wasn't really into Freddie. And so we already knew, well, you know, Freddie's already been trying to leave us. We've basically been trying to ask, beg him to stay. And so now this is happening. So now we were like, okay, Freddie, if you want to leave, you can leave. Um, and with John, that was, that was a little bit more emotional because John was only 16 at the time. And Lou was like, I had, I've, I've dealt with parents of minors before, right? Lo and behold, it was Nick and, you know, Justin at the time. And so, but I didn't know any of that. And so he's like, you know, I don't think I want to go down that route. And we kind of already knew because Louis Fonzie already had a career in, in Spanish music and he was already becoming known. And his father and their dad wanted John to follow in those footsteps. He didn't want him to be a part of a group. So because of that, when Lou was like, you know, I don't want to deal with minors and life like that, we were kind of like, well, let's sit down with John. And we were like, hey, John, like, that was a tough one, man. Because we were like, he was like our little brother. And we were like, your dad has been wanting you not to be in this group and they'll go this way. This We have an opportunity here, Brody, Raul, and myself to do this. And who's to say if we say no to him and we stay together, if your brother blows up and then your dad's like, John, you're out. Now you're going to start moving in your brother's footsteps. And then we're like, oh, now what do we do? So it was kind of like that mentality for us. But I mean, still, it was, I mean, you talk about tears and bawling. It's amazing. And to this day, if you ask John Rodriguez, when, when I, every time I see him, I tell him, look, man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, he's a Grammy award winner now. So, I mean, John's okay, but still it, it, there's like a little piece of my heart. That's like, man, I, you know, it, it sucks that we did that. And, you know, but it's all good. We just saw him. I saw him not too long ago uh, performing with his Coast City guy. And so, yeah, it's all love, man. We're all brothers. So after C-Note performed in front of Lou, right? You had that. He saw you guys. He saw you perform. How deep is your love? Everyone goes home. What's next? What happened after that? Um, After that, it was, you know, we get a call. And then we all had to make a decision. We made a decision. Yeah, let's go for it. And then uh, what happened was, you know, Lou told us, well, you're going to need a blonde haired guy in your group. <laughs> right. Because that was like the formula, right? Like everybody talks about this formula that he had, but he really did. I mean, you know, he had Nick and Brian and then he had Howie, AJ and, and Kevin. And then, you know, he had Justin and Lance and then he had JC, Joey and Chris. So that was the what he was you know, it was just, he was on a mission for that format because it worked. I mean, why, you know, why reinvent the wheels working for you? Um, but with us, it was more like Raul had been in a group way before any of this with a guy named Drew. And when Lou said that, Raul was like, well, I know a guy, but he's pretty much the only guy that I think would match with us, but let's try him out. And so we met, I think we met at the Florida mall with Drew. Brody and I had met him for the first time. Raul knew him. And we started singing, uh, Cupid by 112 just random just started singing it and Drew joined in and it was like that moment of holy shit 
like this shit sounds unbelievable. And so right there, it was like, all right, we got Drew. And we thought that was it. You know, we thought, okay, we went to Lou and we're like, listen, this is our guy. Raul knows him. It's not like just finding somebody on the street or like just having random auditions. Um, and Lou Psalm heard us sing together and was like, absolutely, go find another one. <laughs> we were like, what? We're like, come on, man. Like, this sounds amazing. Yeah. And and at that time, you know, you also had the, you already have got two bands with five guys, you know, we're going to be different, right? And the way we're going to be different, in addition to the fact that we were a little older at the time, and when we sang, it was like a really R&B-influenced, you know, sexual undertones, right? Because that's what we were talking about. And so um, we went through a whole gambit of people that Lou wanted to put in our group, man. And it wasn't until one day, um, one day we walked in, we had had enough with all these guys that Lou was trying to put in our group. When I tell you, some of them were just, Super nice guys, but th- it just wasn't for them, right? Um, but we put them through the ringer. We, like, we put them through the motions, and it was just like, dude, it's just it's not going to work. Like, these guys aren't going to work. And so we finally said, we called up to the office at Transcom, and we said, get everybody together in your office. We're coming up there. We've got something to say. And so, he, you know, we walked in. He did it. He got everybody from the office into his huge office. This is when we were on Sand Lake at the time. And we walked in and we sat there and we sang like two or three songs a cappella. And we looked at Lou and the whole place was like, holy shit, Lou. Like vocally, these guys, holy shit. And everybody left and we looked at Lou and we said, listen, this is the group and that's that. And he tried to fight it some more. He tried to push. And then he finally goes, all right, it's you four. And we were like, all right. And so that... And that became the the story of how Cino fought to just be four guys that that vibed out, and we decided to, you know, at that time, swim upstream because Lou wanted the five, and uh, that's how we did that. He won that battle. It turned out <laughs> turned out he well. Won that battle. He won that battle. <laughs> what was <laughs> so your first? Was- what was your first visit like to Trans to Transcontinental Studios? Because on the outside, uh, it didn't look like there was a lot going on. But you know, yeah. what was it like on the inside when you had a chance to finally get into that studio? By the time we got into the studio, and we had solidified ourselves as four, and we got into the studio, you have to understand that at that time, it was crazy. I mean. Backstreet blew up here. They were already huge in Europe. They blew up here. NSYNC was huge in Europe and they were about to come here. And they're both recording in Transcon, right? In different rooms. You know, all the guys are walking in and out, crisscrossing, going into different rooms to record their verse. And then you had us who were, were new. Um, Lou had Innocence, which was a girl group, you know, LFO, um, you know, rest in peace, Devin and Rich. Um, and Brad, and at the time, Briz, and, and Briz, rest in peace as well, um, they were there, and, and, you know, it was just energy of creativeness, and just, you know, everybody, like, on the verge of their dream, you know, and of course, Backstreet and Sick were, you know, ahead of it, and the rest of us were coming up and trying to make our, our name for ourselves, and at the time, it wasn't, you know, I know that with Backstreet and Sick in the very beginning, there was that tension, because Lou tried to hide them, and you know, it was just that kind of vibe that they talk about in early in, in their in their career, um, which has since dissipated. And, and, you know, those guys, you know, all respect and love each other at that point. Um, and then there was us. 
And I believe at the time, Lou was trying to say that we weren't really a group, like per se, a singing group. He was trying to say that we were, uh, this is hilarious, because he, he had just bought into Chippendales, right? And so he was trying to say that we were like Chippendales guys that were only performing on his Chippendales show. And instead of telling everybody we were C-Note, he was saying, no, they're C5, like Chippendales 5, you know? And I, I remember vividly, like Joey and Chris and, and, uh, and these guys were like, he's so full of shit. We know you guys are a group, you know? And then behind, you know, us, between us, we were like, yeah, we're a fucking group. Like, you know, it is what it is. But of course, around Lou, we were like, no, yeah, we told them C5. So it's all good. You know, they think we're Chippendales, but it was, you know, there was, there was no hiding it at that point, you know? And so, and I think that was, it was really cool because NSYNC knowing how they first had a battle with Backstreet in the beginning of that NSYNC with us, they were always like, you know, and of course, Chris knew Brody and, and, and Raul, they were always cool, man. Always from day, from day one, it was kind of like a, what are you guys doing? And I remember Justin used to walk into our sessions and, you know, this is at the time, you know, 16 year old Justin who loves hip hop and is doing, you know, pop music in, in Europe, but wanted to be doing R&B, like what he did on his solo career and what he was doing at the end of, of NSYNC. He was like, dude, he's like, this is what I want to do. Like this, the music I want us to do, you guys are so lucky. And, you know, of course we're looking at him like, dude, you're huge in, in Europe right now. So it's working out for you. This is just what we're making. And that was kind of the vibe. And then AJ would walk in and he's like, what are you guys up to? And listen to some, he's like, man, that's dope. And that's the way the vibe was, man. It was just people doing choreography in one room, groups recording, groups walking around, playing pool in the, in the lounge. Um, that's just the vibe, you know? And I remember one time uh, when, when Justin was in the studio listening to our stuff, and me and Raul, we were kind of done cutting our vocals and we're like, you know, grabbing our bags and stuff. And 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 Justin's like, where are you guys going? And we're like, oh, we're going to go play ball at the Y. And he's like, can I go with you guys? And we're like, yeah, come on. And so we went to the Y and just started shooting around and, and played, you know, ball. And that it was just a cool time, man. I mean, and like you say, people know that it was happening, but they didn't really know what it was really like in that that circle of what was happening and and it was it was, it was a very cool moment in time did you all play any any events or shows with backstreet or in sync in the early years yes after we got signed we did um but before we got signed we would do house of blues shows you know before we got signed we were selling out house of blues um of course trust me we don't we didn't fool ourselves we were part of the company that developed backstreet in sync and now they're seen up. So we knew why the majority of these people were here, right? To see, you know, are these guys going to be the next guys? But but Joey and Chris and, and these guys would come to those shows. You know, they'd have to hide out, you know, in the in the in the Raptors and, and stuff. But they were it was super cool. So we didn't at that time we weren't really performing with them with them. Um we were performing like Pink. We performed with Pink before Pink blew up as Pink. Um we were doing the House of Blue shows. It wasn't until the Orlando bands together that we all performed on the same stage with Backstreet and Sync, Genuine, 95 South, um, Innocence, LFO, Take Five, which was another younger group that Lou was developing. Um, we performed there. But then after that, when we got signed, that's when the radio shows started to happen. Um, and, you know, I'll always remember there's a funny story of the radio show. Um, we performed at this huge radio show in Nebraska. I'm talking about this field was massive. And where all you see is people. 
And, you know, it goes on all day like these radio shows do. And of course, you know, the beginning acts are during the day. And as as it gets darker, the, the, the main acts are popping up, you know. And so we landed, we went, we did our show probably mid-afternoon because Wait Till I Get Home had just come out, which was our single. Um, mid-afternoon, closer, getting getting there to nighttime. But by the time we left the show from doing meet and greets and signing and, and hanging out, got back to the airport to fly back out. By the time we got there, NSYNC was getting off their plane and going to the show because they were, I, I don't know if they if they closed that show or they were about, or they were just about the headliners because they were already huge. And like we would cross in the airport and just start laughing and cracking up and they're, you know, how's the show? And so it was just a cool vibe of that stuff. But yeah, then at that point we started doing radio shows and stuff and popping up with each other and, and stuff like that. And of course we were going on way earlier than they were because, you know, they were, they were in sync. Um, when we were in New York meeting with Epic Records, we had signed with them. And I think we were up there just having another, another uh, meeting with our A&R and, you know, everybody, all the higher ups in, in Epic. And it just so happened that NSYNC was going to debut on TRL for the first time ever. And we, we got to go with Lou and we were in the green room while they were getting ready for that show. And they were kind of like, which was crazy to see at the time, because they hadn't been here yet, you know, at that in that capacity, they had been in Europe, but still, because this was the States, it was like, you know, that, that allure of this is the United States, like this is our home. And now we're going to about to come out, like hopefully these people receive us. But dude, I mean, the streets were, were packed. It was standing room only. It was nuts. And like, we got to see that moment in time, which I thought was super cool from the green room to watch these guys go up there and, and do that for the first time. And everybody knows the rest <laughs> I do that you know so th those were cool those are cool stories i mean i we then afterwards you know went on tour with britney spears and Cher and everybody else but dude that was that moment for us was like holy a sea of people like you don't see anything else when you look out but people and that was crazy for us I yeah i know i heard britney spears Did you say share as well yeah we toured with share yeah Okay, so let's talk yeah. about both of those. I'm sure those were they both at the same time, or did you tour no with each one individually? <laughs> no way. Um, Britney, so Britney Spears' tour was she had just released "Baby One More Time," like literally just released it, and this was the "Baby One More Time" tour, and she had about seven opening acts, dude. She had everybody, you know, because at the time "Baby One More Time" just came out, so to to make sure it was an entertaining show. It, and get people in the door they had more opening acts right and so we would go out right before britney so it would be all these groups and bands and then us and then britney and so that's the way it was at the beginning and then from show to show we would start seeing more and more people and people would dress like britney and people wear, with britney signs because what was happening was that song was starting to blow up on radio so so fast that in that tour, you watched her career skyrocket. Um, and because of that in the beginning, which is a funny, another funny story, because I told you all these other opening acts would go on and then us and then Britney. Well, we were getting a lot of love at the time, um, a lot of love. And because of that, if you watched what happened with, uh, with Tiffany and New Kids on the Block, if you look at the history of that, Tiffany, New Kids were opening for Tiffany. And because New Kids started to blow up, that switched. And then New Kids became headliner. Um, 
at that time, we started getting a lot of love. Baby One More Time is starting to blow up. We were going on before Britney. By the middle of that tour, we started going on like three acts before Britney. And that was, you know, to Johnny Wright's testament. He was like, no, I ain't letting that shit happen. I already seen that happen once. Um, you know, I'm not going to let it happen again. So uh, he, he did that one. No, I mean, listen, I can't fault the guy. It was a good move. <laughs> you know, another funny story is that Justin would come to the shows. You know, he would have to hide. You know, this was back when they were dating. He would come to the shows and hide in the back. And of course, he would say what up to us and everything. And he goes, yeah, I told Brittany to stay away from you guys. <laughs> we were like, what are you talking about? He goes, I know about your Latin lover bullshit. She ain't going near you guys. Stay away from her. We were like, all right. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I guess that worked yeah. out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was fun. And what about the Share shows? What were those like? That was crazy because, I mean, Share was already iconic. You know, we watched Britney beginning stages of getting to that, but Share was already iconic. It was the Believe tour. So it was like her biggest hit of all time with the, with the you know, the auto tune and all that. And so... When we got that call, we were like, what? Because she she picked us. She was like, yeah, I, I want those guys. And so that to us was like a, a holy cow moment. Um, but then, of course, you hear the stories, you know, Cher likes younger guys. And so we were all laughing because, you know, our management, everybody was like, oh, she's just bringing some eye candy on tour to see who she wants to mess with, you know, or who she wants to pick out. <laughs> um, but none of that happened. But, uh, yeah, we were on there. And we were there with uh, Lou Lou Bega. You remember that guy, Mambo Number Five? Of course, that song didn't go away like for yeah. a while. <laughs> so we were. It was us and him, and then and then Cher, and that was surreal. Not necessarily uh, Lou Bega, but the crowds and the you know watching what it's like to be on a tour with an icon, like the venues and the catering and the backstage and getting taken care of is crazy because she, I mean, she had whatever she wanted. I mean, she, she developed the tour dates to coincide with what she wanted to do. You know, whether it was, we're going to be in Utah, I want to go skiing. And so that we're going to do that. We're going to take two days there because I want to ski one day. And so that was kind of cool to watch that level. You're, you're just setting yourself up just to enjoy yourself out there. Were all these dates domestic in the States or did any of these take you outside internationally at this point? No, these were all here, um, you know, and for us, it was like crazy, uh, you know, Madison Square Garden, MGM, uh, all these icon iconic places. What is that like playing at Madison Square Garden for the first time? Like, what was that feeling like? What were you, what was going through your head when you're playing at this, one of the most iconic venues in the world? It's exactly what you would think. Like, your mind is blowing. And, you know, I mean, you're doing sound check, looking out and you're like, wow, you know, and then, of course, hit a little bit harder for me being a Jersey kid, you know, the New York Knicks and Madison Square Garden. It is the spot. Right. And so it was like, this is nuts, you know, and walking around the streets, knowing that, you know, it says share, but then you would see C-Note go by and then Lou Vega would go down in the in the Jumbotron outside. And you're like, this is just nuts. Um, and then performing and. You know, and, and then she brought out all the stars, too, to watch, just like Brittany did. You know, Brittany, when she, as she was going, the stars started coming out to watch. You know, so when we did L.A., it was like star studded everywhere. And New York, you know, Cher had all the stars out. And that was crazy to see, too. You know, 
Did any of your families get a chance to catch the group on any of these tours throughout the years? Yeah. When we, um, you know, what's crazy is that Brittany didn't come to Orlando and neither did Cher, which sucks. You know, I think, I think Orlando gets, gets, uh, gets a bad rap when it comes to concerts and people tend to skip it and go to Tampa and Miami. But um, when we did Miami with both, we had our families come up. And so they got to see that. And that was kind of a surreal moment for them because we had been already out there doing it. And then for them to come to Miami, come backstage, see the production and, and then see us on stage with all these people and, and the craziness was like for them to be like, wow, like, you know, they're doing it. You know, because we were we had done a couple TV shows, you know, back then with Jenny Jones and Ricky Lake and stuff and Rosie O'Donnell. So but they hadn't really they hadn't really seen that level in person. You know, the most they had seen was House of Blues, you know, and that was, you know, cool to watch all these people screaming and, and you know, be in that. But then just to be in this huge arena and see it is a different level, you know, so. I can imagine. And I think about the first time that I learned about the group and it wasn't through any of the other groups at the time, wasn't through Lou or anyone you were touring with. It was on a cable program in Miami called Whammy on Miami. That was the first time I had it been 98 or early 99. I think it was, I don't know. I don't even know if the album, a different kind of love had even come out yet. And what may have been out, and correct me if I'm wrong, may have been this sneak preview cassette that was like a promo that was put out before the album. And that was the first time I learned of you guys. And what do you remember from your time appearing on the Whammy on Miami? Uh, well, that's a good one, because with Whammy in Miami, they brought us on. We went on there before we ever got signed like in the very infant stage of us being together and they were super cool with us. And then we developed a rapport with them and, and it was almost like we became part of their family. So they would have us up there all or down there all the time because it was in Miami. So it was like, Hey, can you guys come to this? Or can you guys come to that? And we would always drop things and be like, yeah, we're going to go to it. And like I say, we saw Brittany going, um, not that we got to Brittany height, whatsoever but they saw us go from not sign starting there get starting to get a following you know coming up and then boom you see that cassette tape which is a teaser to the album and then we were still going back over there and doing and doing stuff and then bang the album comes out single com or the single comes out and then we start doing these bigger shows but we would always make time to go back to Miami and Miami because to us they were like yeah they were with us from, from day one so we would always go back with them. And man, it was fun. It was a good time to be with those guys. Funny thing too, on the, on the cassette that at least, at least the copy that I have, it's got a sticker on there. Be sure to see C-Note perform live at the Macy's department store in Lenox, August 26th at 6 PM. Was that in New York? That was the, yeah, that show was big. So yeah. That, and you know, all the groups did it. I mean, you know, listen, we weren't, we weren't creating anything new. We were, following the what the what Backstreet had done and NSYNC had done, all the shows they had done coming up, we were following in the same track. So when we did that, it was crazy. I mean, it was a whole corner. They shut down the street and, you know, just cameras everywhere and people filming it and fans everywhere. And just, you know, they, you know, at that point, they knew where we were staying and 
it was like a, you know, like everything that you think of at that moment was happening for us and doing the Macy's show was like unbelievable. And, you know, funny story about that <laughs> is um, I want to say it was that show or one of those shows at that time. But, uh, you know, they, you know, they always put waters and, you know, we always had towels with our names on. Right. That was kind of our thing. We would have a towel with, you know, D-Lo, Ra-Ra, Brody, Drew. And, you know, we would throw it out in the crowd and as, you know, to our fans. But the waters, we always had waters. Well, I think at this at this show, or it was, it was a show like it, I guess they didn't have all regular waters, and they, they started putting out flavored water. And at some point, we all started throwing water on each other, and Brody throws water in my face. And literally for, like, the next two songs, I could see nothing. It was just eyes burning from this fruit water that he had thrown in my face. <laughs> and of course I'm using the towel and I'm trying to dry it and I'm yelling at him behind the scenes on the stage. You know, it's one of those five heartbeat moments where you're screaming at each other as you're performing. But yeah, Macy's, yeah. that was unbelievable to be in New York and, and and do the Macy's, you know, I mean, it's Macy's and it's New York, you know, they're all like iconic things. What do you remember from some of those, those events of the crowd? Like at what point did you really see a lot of the fans and you knew like they really wanted to see you guys or they were just really into the performance. I know I've seen some videos and uh, you definitely seem like you had a lot of control over the audience. So what do you remember from some of those shows where the fans were just super into what was going on? Um, well, you could tell, I mean, we had our spots, right? I mean, New York, Miami, Orlando were like our spots, right? And so those places kind of saw us the rise of where we were going. And whenever we went there, it was like just a different energy. And, you know, you would do the shows, and you would hear the screams, and then it would become like screaming, like cry screaming and like, wait a minute, something different's happening. And you're watching this, you know, change as you go. And then when you do the meet and greets, they get bigger and the girls are like freaking out and like crying and they're like shaking that they're meeting you. And it's a surreal, it's dude, it's a surreal moment to think that what you're doing on stage and all that, you know, and I know artists say this all the time, but to see that kind of effect as what you're doing, it, it's, it's, uh, there's nothing like it. You know, when, when musicians say it, it's a drug and, and it's instant gratification, right? So like for actors, you do a movie and it's in the can for six, seven months to a year before they release it. So you don't have that. But when you're on stage performing, and, and actors get it when they do musicals and they do Broadway. But when you're on stage and the moment you you do that thing that makes them react that way, I mean, it's it's true. Everything they say about it is very true. It's It's a different feeling to have that happen at that moment. Yeah. Based off anything that you're doing. You right. Know? Yeah. What are the most interesting things that I remember C-Note doing? And I hope that a lot of your fans remember this, but it was when C-Note performed on the grind on MTV. Do you remember that? Absolutely. What do you Absolutely. remember from that experience? Cause that had to have been something memorable in the career of the group. Yeah. So this, I want to say this is before Eric Meese. Or after Eric Meese, you know, he came from the real world, did the grind, and and it became a thing, right? And at that time, workout tapes and self-help tapes were like exploding. And and we got the call and they said, you know, our management said, Do you guys want to do the grind? And we're like, wait a minute, what the hell's the grind? Like you're talking about the workout 
And they're like, yeah. And we're like, why were we going to do a workout tape? You know, they're like, well, you guys work out, you're in shape. Like, and they want to do something, but they want to bring in the musical element to it. And so we were like, well, you know, of course we're going to have the meeting and, and talk about it. And so we went up to New York and talked about it and they told us how they want to do, you know, incorporate the music and bring in the Latin influence and show how you guys work out and why you're in such good shape. And then you're going to have a performance on the show. And of course they sell it and they make it a nice neat package. And you're like, man, okay. And then they tell you how much they're going to pay you. And you're like, oh yeah, for sure. We're in, <laughs> we're in. Yeah. And so that's what it was. And we got there and it was a super cool vibe. I mean, it was fun. You know, we had to rehearse for like a week to like get the moves down, you know, cause each one of us had a certain workout move that we were going to do and explain it and do that whole thing and then perform on the show. And uh, the funny thing about that is, you know, and and he still laughs to it today is, is Brody was sick during that taping of the grind. And funny or not, that workout was like, it, was, it got pretty intense if you're doing it for a full hour, right? So they would they were trying to figure out how are we going to have Brody do this? He's sick. Like he's like got the flu and, and this and that. Well, they were like, well, it's fine. We're going to have a low impact version of what you guys are doing. So your move that you're doing, David, we're going to cut some of the movements out, kind of do the same move, but not as intense. And then that's going to be the low impact. So Brody, you're going to be the low impact guy. That... When we heard that, hey, Brody, you're going to be the low impact guy. We couldn't stop talking about it. I mean, it was like, he's like, great. I'm the low impact guy. Great. This is awesome. I'm forever going to be known as the low impact guy. Like, <laughs> who, can't, who can't do the move? So I have to do right. the low impact version. <laughs> and it was it was just an ongoing joke. To this day, we still laugh about it. But it was cool to do. And we did it. And, you know, <laughs> Um and that's yeah. a tangible that's a tangible copy you can get. You can still find a VHS copy out there. At what point you? you can? Yeah, eBay is the is the place to go for anyone to should and a copy of that. So, uh, at what point do you share something like that with your family and say, "Hey, look, I was on MTV, The Grind." At what point do you share that? Do they know that that exists? It's funny because they see, like, my mom has all the all the memorabilia right in a box and so when my when my kids were over there she'll pull it out to the embarrassment moment right where it's like look at this and she'll open up a page where i'm shirtless and i'm you know on tiger beat or whatever it is and my my kids are like what what is this you know and so and then of course and then i start going yeah i, I used to be somebody you know i used to do some stuff <laughs> they're just like okay whatever dad um but uh but yeah i mean they ask now um, it's funny because whenever my youngest sees or hears any boy band, because, you know, obviously they still play in Backstreet and Sync, I mean, everywhere. Um, whenever she hears any of those songs, she thinks it's us. So she's like, dad, it's you. And I'm like, no, that's Backstreet. And then, so, you know, another day, oh, dad, dad, that's in sync. <laughs> you know, <laughs> dad, dad, and it's 98 degrees, you know? And so that's funny, but she, she loves it. She thinks it's cool. And then every now and then, like on Instagram, you'll you'll have those posts of of you know talking about this show and me being on it. And then my my uh, fourteen year old will be like, "Ah, look what I found!" <laughs> and she'll turn and show it to me, and I'm like, "Yeah." So, I mean, it's cool. It, it it's cool for them to to know that that happened. I don't think they really care. They think it's kind of funny. Yeah. So, but it, it it's cool. 
talk about. You know, I'm that I'm the I'm a what is it? Al Bundy, where he's talking about his football career. All right. You, the, like, oh yeah, I used to, I used to sing and dance on stage and tour the world. You also scored your own four touchdowns in one game, there, David. Yes, you did. Yeah, <laughs> I also so, had fruit water thrown in my face. There you go. Yes, you did. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's that that's great. The uh, another thing I wanted to also talk about too was some of that you also played at SeaWorld, right? And they still do it. I mean, uh, SeaWorld was always big with music acts and stuff like that. And back then it was, um, they would always have, I forget what they would call it and promote it as. It wasn't really like a grad night, but it was kind of like a grad night. And they would do that. And um, the funny story about that is at that time, um, it was us and 98 Degrees fighting for the third spot, right? So you had Backstreet and Sync, and then 98 Degrees and, and Sino. And it was, and you know, they... They, they had a head start on us and they had Motown. And so, but of course, you know, that, that kind of like friendly rivalry in, in our minds, we're like, no, man, we're going to be, we're going to be the third ones. It's not going to be them, you know? And so that show, I remember we, they, they closed the show and we were on before them. And then, and this is hilarious behind the scenes stuff. So there was trailers out back, you know, because there was no real dressing room. There was a locker room for like the, I don't know, dolphin trainers and, and, you know, the skiers and stuff like that back then when they had that. So there was a locker room for that, but then they had a nice trailer with air conditioning and, you know, all real nice. And so at first they put us in the trailer and, you know, we were like, all right, cool. And, you know, we're eating the lunch meat and all the other stuff that we have back there and, and having the drinks and do our sound check. And then after sound check, their manager, I guess, had spoken to the SeaWorld people and they said, you know, Sino can't get off stage. They have to stay on stage, right? Because we would like to get off and like get into the crowd and interact and stuff. And this was Orlando, right? This is our hometown. So that when they came back and told us that you guys can't get off stage, then we were like, oh, now it's on. Right. They're trying to tell us we can't be off stage. And then it became, you know, that built that moment of, okay, now it's now it's really a rivalry because they're trying to, you know, stop us from doing something. And I don't even know if I'm sure none of them had anything to do with any of that. Um, But so we went on stage and performed. And then after we did, you know, our closer was wait till I get home. And when wait till I get home finish, it was, you know, that was our show, but we ended up doing another two choruses of which like a home acapella and walking through the crowd, right? That's our way of, you know, fighting the system and walking through the crowd. And then, and of course it was great. And it was, you know, and, and then afterwards the SeaWorld people were like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And we we're like, Hey, you know, we just did it just happened. And they were like, all right, cool. So whatever. But ever since that moment, it became a, you know, us against 98 for the third spot. Oh, you know, this thing that you create in your mind, um, and then we would see each other at radio shows all the time. And so it was like, we would always be there with 90 degrees and us and 90 degrees and us and 90 degrees and us. Um, and then, you know, the the side that nobody sees of what happened with our record label and with Lou started to stop the momentum. And of course they had their, you know, they, they were still going, you know? And I mean, if you watch, if you look at the correlations, if you look at the fact that we had a song on our album called One Night With You. And we also did it in Spanish because three of us were Spanish. And then you heard the single come out, 98 Degrees is Give Me Just One Night, Una Noche. We're like, eh, it's kind of similar vibe there. And they did it in Spanglish. 
And so we were like, oh, here it is. Feed the fire some more, you know? Yeah. So that, that, that was kind of cool. And then, of course, you know, we, you know, Jeff Timmons was around Transcon after all that, after 90 degrees split up for a while. And, and we would talk with Jeff and we would laugh about all these things and, you know, have a beer. It was funny. It's good you can kind of you know, laugh at, you know, especially later on, as I'm sure when you're going in and you're in, in the thick of situations like that, I'm sure it can get quite competitive and everyone might be trying to one up each other, even if you're not talking about it. It could be what is going on. Yeah, and definitely uh, that. yeah, definitely that. And, and more so within Transcon. I mean, within the unspoken, we need to be better was always that. Because like I said, like Motown created that back in the day, Lou created that you know, he took the same blueprint and did it in Transcon, you know, whether Innocence is, is rehearsing over here, Take 5 or LFO or Sino, Backstreet and Sync. It was always, uh, we got to do better than what they did. It was always that. And I think the, you know, it came up quite a few times, the, probably maybe the most well-known song, and if I'm wrong on that, correct me, but Wait Till I Get Home definitely was the one that was on the billboard charts. And I remember the first time I saw the video was on the box. Remember the box? It was based yes. out of based out of Miami. And I remember seeing the, the video for Wait Till I Get Home. What do you remember of making that video? Cause uh, I remember seeing it on the box way back when. Well, you know, what's crazy is that when they showed us the concept of that video, we were like, oh man, you know, that the, the old school Lincoln with the suicide doors convertible. We were like, that's so sexy. Like you, that you know, it doesn't get better than that. And then, you know, they were showing us our wardrobe and, you know, what we were picking from and then the glasses. And then I'm like, you know, I had the long leather trench coat with the leather pants. We're all wearing black and that whole kind of vibe. And then we realized they were doing the matrix. It was, it was like the matrix. You know, if you look, if you look at the movie, that Lincoln with the suicide doors is the Lincoln they're in. If you look at my whole outfit, it's like Neo, right? And so then later, after the fact, when we were like, well, wait a minute, you know, which we thought was, was cool, but making the video was, man, I mean, at that point, your first video at that level and knowing what the budget was for that video at that moment, which was unheard of, you'll never see that now unless you're some huge artist. But for us coming out of the box, you know, no pun intended, at that level was like, you know, trailers and, you know, wardrobe people and the catering, and the, the dancers, and the, the extras, and we're setting up in different locations in LA and we're doing, it was just unreal. Did Lou make it out to any of the recording of that video? Yeah, for sure. He would come out for those, the big things he would pop up um, and hang out and, you know, do his thing and, you know, he would, he would always show up for the, for the, for the big things, you know, he would definitely show up. Ah, you guys, what are you guys doing? You're loving it. Yeah. You're on your way, you know, doing his, you know, the Lou thing. So it was cool. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Is he giving just words of encouragement as you all are doing this? Did he add any of his two cents? Did he have any control over the direction of where the video went? Uh, now at that point, at that point, when he got to that level, you know, he would make suggestions all the time and he would say stuff. But I mean, at that level, you know, it wasn't, if it wasn't cool, it wasn't going to happen, you know? So, and of course, always encouraging and always you guys are, you guys are definitely on your way. The biggest thing ever. And, 
you know, I did it with Backstreet, did it with Sync. Now it's going to be C note, and here we go. It's going to happen. No, again, no point in saying, no point in saying, here we go. But uh, yeah, he was he was always he was always good for that. I mean, he would he would pump you up and and have you thinking, you know, oh, tomorrow we're number one on the charts. It's going to happen. And that kind of leads to a documentary that came out a couple of years ago that I think Lance Bass produced called the boy band con, which you have a small part uh, in an interview segment as well. So how are you approached for that? And what do you remember uh, seeing that documentary for the first time when living through a lot of what had taken place? Well, we did the Disney special Christmas special one year and on that special, and this is a long story, but I got to give him a shout out. But uh, there was a guy they put they put with us as like an assistant to do things for us, whatever we needed to do. And this guy was so good and so cool. And, and like we really hit it off that we, you know, we told Lou, we we're like, we need him to come work for us. Right. To do something. And so he he, he became like an A&R for us within Transcon Management. Um, and that's Joel. And so Joel, super cool. And everybody loved Joel. And he became really good friends with Lance. And then he moved out to L.A. And, and of course, Lance is out there. And so when Lance was putting this together, he asked Joel, you know, how about the C note guys? And so Joel was like, you know, I think David would be really good to uh, to do it. Let me ask him. And so Joel reached out to me and asked me and I said I would do it. Um, and so I did. And, and you know, with that, you know, he had a he wasn't really diving into a lot of stuff like deep stuff. He wanted to keep it, you know, more of what kind of the good things that Lou had done and and kind of stay away from the negative on that one. You know, but for me, it was, you know, and what I touched on the soundbite they used was was basically me saying, you know, a lot of good. But, you know, there's also, you know, three deals that, you know, basically Lou took away from us, you know. And so that's something that I've been, you know, I did. A, I wrote a docuseries and I'm writing the book of 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 that parallel, uh, the juxtaposition of Lou's, you know, the evilness and Ponzi scheme side of what he was doing and how that paralleled our career. Um, you know, I think a lot of people and and rightfully so, you know, the ones that did know us are like, Oh, they came out, wait till I get home. And then where'd they go? They kind of disappeared forever. Um, but what people don't know is there was, you know, after he took us off Epic, we went to Columbia records and we were recording more music and then he took us off Columbia and then he, um, you know, then we had deals overseas that he wouldn't do. And then we had deals in Latin America that he wouldn't do because they didn't fit into what his narrative was to continue what he was doing with his Ponzi scheme. Right. And then throughout that happening is when he landed the uh, the O-Town show or ABC at that time. Um, and so that's that's it's just a different thing. You know, we're, we're touching on all the other parts, but that's something that hasn't been told. And so like the best things of C-Note, I think were never seen and the potential of where they could have went was never seen because of those decisions that were made behind the scenes that took our career in a whole different spectrum. You know, it took us this way. When I say 98 degrees and us were fighting for the third spot, um, we were fighting against the decisions he was making at the same time. So as we were doing this with 98 degrees, Lou was doing this to us and, and kind of just drifting us off into no man's land. And, you know, it kind of just fell out. You know, that's just the way it, it, it went about. That's a story that I think needs to be told. So I, I'm, I'm putting that together now. 
And that's good to hear that you are working on that. And there's always going to be these these other stories and things that were kind of going on simultaneously that may not always be shared in certain documentaries. There almost has to be another one that comes out that kind of yeah. fills in some of those gaps. And some of those gaps can be quite, quite large. And one of the things you also mentioned to me offline was that you also had driven Lou, like you were a driver for him, which is totally separate from the music part. So what was that like getting a chance to be that close to somebody where you're driving them uh, around and that sort of thing? Sino um, broke up the first time. So we broke up the first time because of the things that Lou was doing, the decisions he was making. And so everybody went their own way. I, because I, you know, still had dreams of being an actor. And so I said, you know, I'm going to save up, move to L.A. and, and, and try this thing. And so I was working at Royal Pacific Hotel over here in uh, Universal as a bellman and just saving my money. And then just out of nowhere, I get a phone call or the, the bellman office gets a phone call. And because Lou had called my mom and was like, I need to get a hold of Dave. Because at that point, we had all lost contact. It was like, you know, I'm moving on, I'm moving to L.A. Um, you know, you kind of screwed us on this one. But at the same time, it was a love-hate because he did give us the opportunity, but then same time kind of took it away. So he got a hold of my mom somehow. My mom gave him the phone number to the Bellman office. He ends up calling there. Next thing you know, I get a, a call on my walkie-talkie and they're like, hey, David, somebody's calling and they're saying they're Lou Perlman. I think you're getting, it's a prank, right? Because at that time, I hadn't really told those people what I had been doing, I had done. And so I was like, oh, it's Luke Roman. I was like, it's probably really him. And they're like, no way. So I went to the office, pick up the phone. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm working. And he goes, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I can't have this conversation right now. I got to go get some bags and take them to a room. Right. And so he goes, well, what, come meet me, have dinner and let's have a Let's have a talk. So I did. And he goes, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to try acting. Um, because at the time when we were in C-Note, I had done a couple auditions that, you know, I didn't land the part, obviously. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to go back out there. And so he goes, okay, so what if I told you, you can come be my personal assistant driver slash bodyguard, and I'll give you all the time you need and help fly you out to LA to do the acting and auditions. And I said, if you're being straight up with me about it, then, you know, I, I might consider it. And he goes, yeah, let's do it. So I thought about it for a little bit. And I was like, you know, I'm making good money over here and I'm getting ready to go to my dream or I can make good money here and be closer to having easier access to where I wanted to go. And so I decided to do it. And so from that point on, I mean, I was with him 24 hours a day, pretty much. Um, so, and you know, and then I, you know, I had a concealed weapons permit and I had a gun on my ankle all day and, you know, dress shirt, slacks gun on my ankle and I'm driving Lou in his limo and I'm taking him to dinners with all these people. And, I'm, you know, I would go in with them. And so I saw a different side. And at the same time, you know, I was a and ring a friend of mine who I wanted to be a, a rock star. And I started getting his music going and I put his music into a song, into a, a movie soundtrack. And then the story comes, the infamous story of Lou's 50th birthday and people at the office asked me, do they think C-Note would get back together and do a tribute to him? And so that's when I had my other idea of I'm going to get the group back together. And we're going to give this another shot. And so that's a whole nother 
Like the, these tentacles go off into so many. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but yeah, driving for him, it was cool to watch his mind because he was a mad genius at the same time that he was evil and and doing this Ponzi scheme thing. He was also this super intelligent guy that once you realize and watch, you're like, this guy could have done anything. You know, it's a sad moment to see that he used it for what he did and got let greed take over. He was he was a genius. And, and you know, that's part of what I'm writing is that, you know, hindsight's 2020 and a lot of things that I saw and that I was doing, not necessarily doing, you know, that I was doing any kind of criminal activity, but a lot of things that he was asking for me to do. And then I would watch what he was doing. You know, you don't put two and two together. You know, you're, th- you know, you're looking at this guy and you're like, you know, Backstreet InSync and all these companies and the airlines, and he's got all this going on. So yeah, he has all this. And then I have these snapshots of these moments that happened when I was there. But then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Now that I know this, this might've been this and this might've been that. And so there's a lot of that. So with you going back to Lou and helping him with the driving and also in a way, like almost like a security detail for him, what was the reaction from your bandmates? Because of all the stuff that happened with the band, it definitely did not end as well as everyone would hope that it would, which Lou was at the, the cornerstone of all that. What yeah. was their what was their reaction when you went to work for him in that in, in that regard? Were there any feelings of animosity at all as you were kind of taking that on? Yeah. Um, no, there wasn't with us. I mean, because we always had a brotherhood before what was happening before this happened, you know, I mean, we all had really core relationships, you know, before we got brought into Transcom. So that was always at the forefront for us. Um, And then when everybody split their own ways and started going into what they were going to go into, they knew where I went. They knew I was a bellman and everything like that. And then they knew what I was saving my money for. They knew what I was going to go try to do. And then when, when this came about, I told them all and they were all like, you know, it was more of like a laughing and better you than me. And I don't think I could do it, you know? And so, but for me, it was, it's crazy. Cause if you ask all these, all these bands, it's a love hate, right? He gave you such an opportunity at the same time that he did these evil things. And that's such an interesting thing, you know? And so it was kind of like that, you know, we had the love, hate and, you know, they all had it. And and that's kind of the vibe. It was like better you than me, but we know why you're doing it. You're, you know, going to LA and you're going to do that. He's given you, you know, access to, you know, acting coaches and, and different things. And so we get it, you know? And then when I brought them back to do the 50th, um, birthday party, it was always my maniacal plan, you know, to get these guys back together. And that was the opening and it worked, you know, it really worked. And that's another part of the book is that it really worked. And we got back together and we had another chance at Atlantic records. Like we had another, a third major record deal on the table. And once again, it happened again. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's when everybody went their separate ways for good, you know? And that had to be quite disappointing because you got everyone back together, another major label and, did not did not pan out yeah and then the, yeah. the, you know the rug gets pulled out from underneath you yeah so it was like it's like shit but again that's things were being told to us that weren't the truth as to why right. that, ha- that happened right and we always knew something was not was off about it 
And then, of course, again, hindsight 2020, when all the cards fell for him. And then we looked at that time and that moment and the way that showcase for Atlantic came about, it made us realize, ah, I got it. He was he he needed something to happen in that showcase more than just getting Ceno signed. And when he couldn't get it, he was given an ultimatum whether it was going to be either you gonna you're gonna have Ceno and everything else that I need, or you're not having Ceno. He didn't blink an eye to say, well, then you're not getting Ceno, right? And therein lies the evilness of knowing he's got these four guys' career in his hand who have given everything to this. And with a snap of the finger, he's willing to take that off the table for you again and say, no, we're going to keep moving this way because it works for me, you know? And so that's that, that evilness that is greed. And if it doesn't work for me, you know, I'm not going to let you have that. I need you over here to do this for me. And when you see, Lou in the documentaries, not just the one lasted, but the Dateline, the 2020 and what's out there. He just seemed like he was like a lovable guy. Like he was the kind of guy that you could just uh, talk with, you know, he just, he came across that way. But to, but to know that evil side of him uh, is just a very sad situation because of the greed, right? The money and what have you played a big part in that, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, obviously the greed, um, and that's something that whether it was there from the beginning or whether it, it grew inside him because he was getting, you know, he was getting all the success and wanting even more of it, you know, wanting it so fast that maybe, you know, he went down this road. But really what Lou was, at the end of the day, Lou was the guy on the playground wanting to get into the dodgeball game and nobody's picking him, right? And so wanting to be picked and wanting to be part of the guys and be involved and be accepted. Right. Because, you know, Lou was overweight guy and he wasn't necessarily the most social guy, you know, he was a little socially awkward, um, which was masked by the success and the fame and the money. And then everybody accepts him. Right. And so, you know, a part of him when he started Backstreet and NSYNC, um, yeah, Backstreet was because, yeah, he saw the money in it. But he also just created his own dodgeball team, right? So now he's the guy that gets to hang out with those guys. And now the world thinks they're the coolest guys in the world. And now Lou gets to be a cool guy. And so, and you know, and, and yeah. yes, it's making him lots of money and lots of fame and lot, a lot of things that come with it. But really, when you really strip it all down, he just wanted to be a part of the team. And that's what he became with Backstreet. That's what he became with Sync. That's what he became with us. And it was, I'm one of the guys now. And so, you know, as hard as it is for some people that only know the Ponzi scheme, Lou, it was, it was, it was a sad, real, it's a real sad story. Yeah. At the core, at the core of it, you know? Definitely. And that kind of leads me to my next question. When Lou got arrested and put in jail and then not that long after he passed away, what kind of impact did that have on you being someone that was close to him, maybe closer to maybe some others were because not only do you, did you perform in a band that he managed, but also you did drive for him as well. Well, there was signs before he got arrested. Right. So, you know, leading up to that moment, but it was kind of, everybody knew there was something off. Right. And so you're watching this kind of play out and something's off and, you know, at the time we were in Puerto Rico 
uh, promoting our single because this was the Spanish version of Cino, the Cino 2.0 that Raul and I had developed. And so you're watching this happen. And then we're getting phone calls from Orlando and they're telling us what's like giving us play by plays. And we're like, holy shit, are you for real? And like, it was kind of that vibe, you know, for a while. People calling going, hey, this is going down. There's rumors and shit. What the, and what's happening? Um, I remember we flew back and met with him and we could just tell it was not good. You know, um, it was like, yeah, something's not right. Something's really not right. And so we went back to Puerto Rico and then, you know, news of him being, um, you know, now the, the warrant out form and he's on the run and all that kind of vibe. And it, at that moment, it was like a, wow. You know, it was, it was a lot of, you had this animosity because what he's done to your career, but then you have this um, loyalty because of what the opportunity he gave you at a career. And then you see what he did to these people. And you're like, how evil can you be? And then you also see that kid who's on the playground trying to get picked up. And so all of these emotions, it was kind of like a roller coaster, you know? We're like, man, he's he's this and he's this and he's this and he's this and he's this. And he's not just the one thing, you know? And I think you see that in a lot of artists, right? Michael Jackson went through it with all the allegations and and all of that, you know? But But his talent is iconic, right? And so you have these different things. And it's so it's never just the one thing. It's like all these things encompassing. And so that's kind of the way it was for me, you know? And then of course I was with him for a year every day, like every day, you know, late at night when we're done with all the work and driving them home and we stop to get a bite to eat and just have these conversations, you know, and you see more of that kid who just wants to be cool, you know? So it was a big roller coaster of emotions when it happened. Um, but rightfully so, he was where he should have been when they caught him because of the things that he did. And then, you know, a lot of people were asking, Am I going to go see him? Are you going to go see him? Are you going to go see him? I'm like, Why am I going to go see him? You know, at this point in all the conversations we had, how many real true conversations did we have? You know, I could probably count them on, a hand, on my hand. And because the rest were just him creating the persona of what he needed to create to be able to do the things he was doing, you know? So there's a handful of real conversations that we had. And then there's him just continuing this lie, you know, and continuing this aura of what he had created and what he had become. And so when he passed away, it was, yeah, I felt bad. I was like, man, you know, it's sad to see all that potential and all that that he could have had. And he had, and all the, things that he had in his, in his hand once he created this thing. And then at the same time, you're going, he created this thing based off of lies in the beginning where he, you know, I mean, the guy, you know, what he did in the beginning and then where he became, he could have paid back all of that in the beginning and then continue to a road of glory and, and, and success, you know, but he chose a different way. And then I think he got enveloped in the freaking, in the snowball going backwards. So yeah, it, it was a roller coaster of emotions to see it. And, you know, I felt bad. And but at the same time, he deserved to be where he was when he passed away. Yeah. You know, whether he could have gotten out and made uh amends and and you know paid back or done any of that, I mean, we're never gonna know now. Right. So he touched what 
50%, 60% of what the 90s, why people love the 90s, Backstreet and Sync, you know, LFO. Um, you know, at one point, rest in peace, Aaron Carter. Aaron Carter was, was you know, in, around. Um, Jordan Knight, Danny Wood were around, new kids, before they went, got back together and, and created this new, uh, you know, this whole phenomena again for themselves. Yeah. I mean, Danny Wood used to sleep on our couch. Danny Wood came in in the very beginning and we started writing and recording. And here's Danny Wood, right? The heights of new kids, the very first new kids, you know, millionaire guy from a huge, one of the biggest groups in the world. And that guy came to Orlando to record with us. And he walks into our house, the house that we had at the time as the group. And we were like, so, all right. So we're going to go to the studio and we're going to record. And then we're like, all right, so where are we, um, where are we taking you? Where are you staying? He goes, what the fuck do you mean? Where am I staying? He goes, I'm staying right here. And I can't do a Boston accent right now, but he literally was like, I'm staying right here. And we were like, you're staying at our house. He was like, yeah. He goes, I'll, I'll do the couch. I don't care. And so dude, that, that, that's just another moment in our career where we're like, holy shit. And we literally woke up, went to the gym because you, you all know Danny Wood is jacked and it's all about the gym. Yeah, so he went, is. Went to the gym, worked out like animals, back home, showered, had to get your meal in because, of course, he had to have his six meals and his protein shakes. And then head to the studio, be at the studio till sometimes five, six in the morning, go home, take a nap, wake up and do it all over again. And we did that for, man, I want to say it was like a month of just recording and doing that same routine with this dude. And, and so those are the moments that when I say that Lou touched all of these things, he touched all those things. And to the point where, you know, we used to go to the funny story about Danny's, we used to go to lunch and we'd always go to Fridays. We get turkey burgers, right? Cause they're healthier turkey burgers. And so we would always get, I'd get two turkey burgers and, you know, cause I was trying to get big like him. Um, we're always getting turkey burgers. He's getting turkey burgers. And so when the bill came, we'd all pull out our money and, and he would look at, he would look at us and go, put your fucking money away. And we're like, what? he's like, dude, we all got to pay. You're not just going to keep paying for us. He goes, listen, he goes, when you're a fucking millionaire, you pay for me. And as much shit as he gave us, and he gave us a lot of shit um, in a good way, like an older brother. But uh, man, that dude, he was a stand-up dude, stand-up dude. And I went to see him when he started doing his uh, his tribute to his mom. He was doing the solo stuff, solo wood. I went to see yeah. him here in Orlando and we, 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 uh, we met up backstage and talked and still the same guy. So it's just, it's, it's crazy to see, like I said, all, all the things that were touched by Transcon being here in Orlando, you know, when it comes to all that, you know, people don't know that all these, all these different, like the Jeff Timmons was around Aaron, you know, Danny Jordan, like all these things were happening here during all those, that those times. It's crazy. It is. Yeah, there was a lot going on. And again, sometimes these stories and telling it is a little easier as the time has gone on. Now you can really look back and bring other people into that world because as it was going on, at least I don't remember there being a lot of things. Because again, it was like this was a late 90s, maybe early 2000s. It wasn't as easy as it is now to find out what's happening with people and what's going on in certain camps because it wasn't getting out there uh, like it does nowadays. Now you, you do anything and it's, it's the world knows in five minutes. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and I know you and I talked about this off camera, but um, 
I mean, you never know. Listen, 2024 is, is our 25th anniversary. It is. And so uh, so you never know. Sino might have to come out and uh, and leave on our own terms in 2024. You never know. Is this the original C-Note or is this C-Note 2.0 we're talking about? So it would be the original C-Note. C-Note 2.0, mm-hmm. you know, we had our thing and, and you know, we had potential. We it, That's a whole different story. But uh, um, those guys were younger and they're all doing really good right now. You know, um, I think the story that needs to be told and so people can understand of what really was happening and to understand that there was this group with all this potential in this company that for me didn't get its fair shake and really put itself on the map. Um, and now we're coming up to the 25th anniversary. I think it would be pretty cool. So, and I don't know, I mean, we all, we're all on a group text. We always text all the time. So um, you just never know. Yeah. Like I said, I did, I wrote the docuseries. I'm writing the book. Um, and you know, we'll see, I'm doing all this on my own. If the day comes and we get that text and these guys have an itch and they're like, Hey, what do you think? Then, uh, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. So it would be pretty cool. Yeah, it certainly would be. And you see a lot of groups reunite during those periods of big anniversaries and things of that nature. And, uh, would be nice to catch ever catch you guys live playing some songs off of, uh, there it is. Different, different kind, of love. kind of love. Yeah. And this has the hype sticker on it too. I mean, look at that. <laughs> no, you got the real yeah. It's still, um, it's still sealed it's by the way. Fun. I will not open it because it'll mess up the sticker. So I got to keep it sealed. But yeah, hopefully, um, maybe in 2024, we'll bring some value to that. Um, <laughs> but speaking on that, and I, and I want to give a shout out to, uh, let me give a shout out to O-Town and LFO or Brad from LFO and, uh, you know, these guys doing their thing because, you know, I, I've, I've watched as they've done their thing. And it's really cool to see that, that they, uh, you know, they, they, they picked up what was left off and they kind of said, you know, let's go out and do this thing. And what's crazy is that I don't think a lot of people thought, you know, they didn't really give any time to it until they just kept, you know, pounding the pavement. And now you see what they're doing. I mean, they got a viable, you know, tour and they're doing their thing. And that's super cool to see. So shout out to those guys. Yeah. And just, a, I don't know, you know, we won't get into all, all the story there, but just a terrible situation with LFO and what has happened to that group over the years and the amount of uh, passings in the group, just very sad situation with them. Cause they, and I just remember when, when they were at the height of their, of their career and uh, they had the, the summer girls, which it is summer. So you can't escape. I'm sure that song is playing somewhere right now. And uh that that song you could not escape it so just a really sad situation would happen with lfo yeah and and so and i'm glad you touched back on that so again man um a lot of people don't know that the original was brian briz um rich and brad um and then you know briz went his own way and brad and and rich you know found devin and then bang you know summer girls rich writes this mega hit but um, and, and it's crazy that, you know, Briz just passed, Rich, we know, passed away, Devin passed away, and all of them rest in peace. Um, dude, they, 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 they were just some cool dudes, man. I remember Rich, Rich would, uh, he was the ultimate self-deprecating dude, man, but in, a, in such a funny way. You know, he, would, he was, he, I remember he was standing next to me at these functions and these New Year's parties. He'd be like, 
He's like, Perez, don't stand next to me, bro. Don't stand next to me. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Rich? You know, well, he, you're too pretty, bro. You're too pretty. Get away from me. He goes, nobody's going to look at me when you're next to me. He's like, just get away from me. You know, and that's a horrible impression of, of Rich. But, man, he was he was a super stand-up kid, man. And I, I love that guy. So rest in peace, Devin, Rich, and uh, and Briz, man. And, and, and kudos to Brad for doing his thing. I, I caught their show at uh, here in Orlando at the um, – at the hard rock when they came and uh, it was cool to catch up. So, yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. And it's good to, again, good to hear that uh, he's still out there carrying on the legacy of the group and, and hopefully uh, you and, and your bandmates can bring back some, some, uh, some version of C note that, that, that can, can, can be also checked out too. And, and that kind of leads me to the last, last part here I wanted to get into is, you know, you mentioned that you're working on a book. Uh, you're working on something more for the screen as well. So uh, anything else you got going on that you want supporters and fans to know about? Um, I mean, those are two of the big things. You know, the docuseries for me was unpacking the parallels of, like I said, of Lou's Ponzi scheme in our career and, and how those things were intertwined more than anybody ever saw in the behind the scenes. I mean, and then the book is more of my journey from, from the beginning. Um, a lot of things we touched on, um, but of course, more detail of the beginning of my journey into C-Note, um, you know, from seeing Guada to C-Note, the driving for Lou and all those things. And then um, into our career and then C-Note 2.0 and, and just kind of like my life and all the things I've seen and I experienced and, and uh, from my point of view, that's that's more of what the book is. So, yeah, but um, but yeah. And shout out to Brody. Uh, listen, I, I got to shout them all out. So Brody, Drew, Raul, the original Cino. To me, those three guys were hands down probably the best singers I've ever heard in my life, um, without a doubt. Um, I was just happy to be in there doing my little bass thing for them. Um, and then Cino 2.0. Jay, Jay Pez, Orlando, Josh, those those three kids, man. When that when me and Raul got them, they were they were so young, and to see where they're at now as young adults and 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 thriving in their careers is is amazing. So you know, shout out to all those guys and and yeah, man. I, I just I, I if I could say one last thing, it's just that you know those fans that know us and that were really behind us, like you know, keep your ears open, and to the ones that kind of heard of us but kind of didn't that knew that the back streets and the instincts and the 98 degrees and the lfos and the o-towns um but kind of heard of this rumor of the c-note group it's a really good story and so um there's a lot to be said and there's a lot of songs in the vault that i've never seen the light of day that would be very cool to to, to release and let people see the real the real talent that, that those three guys had man so yeah and i appreciate you having me on here jeff yeah of course David. all the things you're doing Thanks, dude. I appreciate that a lot. And I'm glad you had a chance to come on the podcast and share, you know, your story a bit and also the story of C-Note because it is important. And uh, from our conversation as well, there is another chapter that has not been written yet that's in the works. So hopefully there'll be more coming. So, yeah, it's just been a great opportunity to get you on. So thanks. Appreciate it. And as we kind of close it out, David, I'm going to let you kind of close out the interview. Any last comments you want to share to supporters and fans of yours and the group? Uh, I will pass the mic to you to close out our interview. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see what I'm up to or what I'm trying to 
to create. Um, it's David underscore Aaron, E-R-E-N on IG. Uh, Facebook, same thing, David Aaron Perez. And just stay tuned, man. And, and you know, I love what you what what you're doing. And and I'm kind of uh, embarrassed that I didn't know more bands that, that came out of our town. You know, I'm gonna have to go do some more research and and make sure I have my answers. Cause uh because dude, Orlando wasn't just boy bands. There's there was a lot of lot of great music here. And you know, the 90s and what Lou created was was just a moment in music. There's so much more music in Orlando from from all all walks of life, all sounds. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think Orlando doesn't get the credit it deserves when it comes to all music, not just boy bands and groups. Um, so I, I'd like to see that happen more. And and I think the more that our Orlando groups and our Florida groups come up and come out, uh, maybe it'll bring these uh, these these uh, artists to Orlando and and let us check them out here and not have to drive an hour or three hours, three and a half hours to go check them out, you know, and go and support your local groups, man. And your local bands, you know, we have a lot of venues here that, um, that have open access to a lot of our local guys coming up and the ones that are creating now. And I think that we need to, uh, to support those guys, you know, let's lift them up and put them on the world stage and the national stage. And, and, and so they can be proud of being from here and always remember their roots. And shout out Orlando when when they when they make it. You know, I think that's the coolest thing in the world. So support your local acts, man. I can't. Sugar. You know I love.